Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So today I spoke with Dr. Maxi Michak. Maxi is a physiotherapist based in Canada and is an adjunct associate professor in the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta. Maxi received a doctorate in rehabilitation science in 2015 from the University of Alberta and was the inaugural Cy Frank postdoctoral fellow in impact assessment at the Alberta Innovates Canada. And her PhD resulted in the development of a conceptual framework of the physiotherapy therapeutic relationship, which offers a rich and insightful qualitative theory and it has received significant interest in scientific and clinical communities. I've linked the papers in the show notes at wordsmatter-education.com. Maxi has collaborated with local, national and international health system stakeholders to co-develop and implement frameworks to assess research impact on informed decision-making and the scale of research and innovation in healthcare systems. So in this episode, we dive into the nature of the therapeutic relationship as both a theoretical construct and also a central component to any interaction between patient and clinician. We talk about what constitutes a good and perhaps not so good relationship with patients. And we discuss the foundational conditions necessary for a therapeutic relationship to develop and how clinicians can be present with patients to help set the groundwork for such a connection to be established. We also talk about how the fallout from COVID, such as virtual or telehealth care and wearing PPE, might impact the sorts of relationships we want to develop with patients, and Maxi offers some really useful workarounds to mitigate these negative effects. So I absolutely love talking to Maxi. We really hit it off in podcasting terms, given this was the first time we'd ever spoken. She's also an experienced podcaster and co-hosts of podcast Ignite Physio which I thoroughly recommend subscribing and listening to, as Maxi has so much valuable and insightful knowledge and wisdom to share with us on the area of therapeutic relationships. So I bring you Dr. Maxi Michak. Maxi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Oliver. Nice to be here. So I think we could just start by you telling the listeners a bit about you and, and, and your journey into into therapeutic relationships and everything kind of attached to that and, and what draw your interest into that field? Right. So, I mean, I think I'm, uh, I think most of us, I'm going to make an assumption that many of us have had, you know, winding roads, you know, on the journey, on our professional journeys. And, and so I won't go back, you know, to childhood, but um, I, I'll say in terms of being a physical therapist, when I first started as a physical therapist, graduated, uh, thought that I was going to be an MSK manual therapist, you know, uh, had focused on sport, was an athlete at the time as well. And so my focus was, was very treatment focused, very technique focused, manual technique focused exercise, of course. Uh, but I started, I was working in a clinic where we, we had, we were seeing like really a diverse population and so uh, culturally diverse, uh, injury diverse. And so for whatever reason, I, you know, began to become more interested in working with people who were struggling, actually, um, and uh, felt that the connections that I was forming with those people were actually 
what was bringing me satisfaction in, in okay. my in my work, right? And so that led to an interest more in in working with chronic populations, like po- okay. populations with chronic pain, uh, for sure. And then that led me because I wanted to work in an interdisciplinary setting where I felt that I could be, I guess, more authentic in the way I was mm. treating versus private practice. I'll just say that was a that was a private practice clinic I was dealing I was working in, and then so I went to work at at a um, a WCB facility, workers' compensation. So a facility in Edmonton, Canada, and was, yeah, began working with more of a chronic pain population and really began to realize that the relationship, the therapeutic relationship was absolutely essential because I was working with people who not only were experiencing challenges with recovering from their, from their situations, from their injuries and their, their conditions, but also they were within a system that can in, doesn't necessarily invoke trust, right? Mm. And so uh, a lot of the people that I was seeing didn't felt that they'd been listened to, didn't feel that they'd been heard by maybe the system as well as previous providers. And and so I began to realize that that was essential to connect with people. So were you working as a MSK manual physio then? What were you kind of uh, doing with it, these struggling patients? Well, I was, yeah, you know, I was working manually like i was still using manual techniques but but not as much right it was it was uh my my perspective shifted from from the technique to the person mm-hmm. and so establishing those connections because the techniques i was using weren't necessarily what was helping people at, the, at that point they'd had a lot of techniques I don't, i'm no magician yeah. right you know so so i mean i think that that even though I was I was judiciously using manual techniques, soft tissue techniques, maybe some joint mobilization, um, but certainly was far more focused on um, helping the patient or the person connect with their own bodies, um, helping them move, helping them move forward, helping them figure out what yeah. they needed to do to move forward within a system that was telling me that I needed to move them forward as well. And was that an easy transition? Because many clinicians kind of, you know, you've got these techniques and there's a, a whole kind of baggage of theories and mechanisms and reliability and specificity stuff tied to them, none of which is essentially true or, or reflects their, their kind of utility. And so clinicians kind of struggle. They're like, well, without without the techniques being used as they were originally described, it becomes a bit messy, isn't it? Yeah. Using them as just contextual tools to, to shape relationships and to kind of support patients and to, how did you find it? What, what was the, you just, yeah. I think, well, I think for me, what I, I use, I use those techniques to, in relationship with patients. So I wouldn't just apply a technique with with the person it would be i'm engaging you so if i'm doing a soft tissue technique okay tell me exactly what you're feeling okay how do we need to work this is this working is this not working can we do you need me to to do something different how do you need me to adjust this so really actually helping the patient become present with their own bodies and what whatever my manual technique was eliciting if it was eliciting anything at all they needed to be aware aware of that. So I saw it as more integrative, right? So yeah. it was a, it was an integrative experience for myself 
and for the patient, but it was only a piece of what we were doing. And I didn't use okay. it with everybody, right? Yeah. So a part of it was, have you had this sort of treatment before? What has worked for you in the past in terms of this person? Um, but also being able to, to shape how we were moving forward. Um, so um, working with the patient to, to determine what we were doing for treatment, um, not just applying a treatment. So, I mean, as you alluded, I, you know, there's the whole idea of the placebo effect around, around yeah. manual treatments or any kind of treatment, uh, really. And so, so yeah, could I, would it, could it have been placebo if, if that was a part of it? Yes, but it was a part of the, yeah. the context of what we were working with. You didn't find it challenging. I mean, you were quite happy to jettison some of the, because they're, because they're not taught. I mean, they're not taught how you've described them, i.e. how you use them rather. They are taught as tools which affect bits of the body in very specific ways and in with specific locations. And they're not taught in the, in the sense that you're now occasionally using them. And so I just wonder how you, did you just arrive at that use of these tools or it was, it was just a natural transition to your, you were becoming more relationship centered. You had these tools. You thought, well, that seems to work. So two, two things. So first within the system that I was in, Right. So I'm in the, I'm in a workers' compensation system in a rehabilitation facility, right, that is promoting active treatment. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm within a system that's actually saying, you know, we want you to, you know, more be prescriptive with exercise and and helping people become more active. Yeah. So doing manual therapy, like in private yeah. practice, where that's more of maybe more of a culture. Yeah that's not the culture here. So that was supportive of me transitioning, certainly. But the second piece, I think, is is the fact that at the same time as I was, when I got to Millard, um, I had actually, in my personal life, I took a psychotherapy, um, a psychotherapy workshop in a, in a methodology called Hakomi. It's a body-centered form of psychotherapy. It's based in Taoist principles, mindfulness, organicity, uh, mind-body holism, uh, there, there are two more. I just morning here, morning here, mm-hmm. having my first tea. Uh, so, so, so at the same time as I was recognizing, you know, the importance of the relationship, I also started taking psychotherapy training and I actually took a two year, well, it ended up being four year because I became a certified practitioner, uh, Hakomi practitioner, but I was taking psychotherapy training. And so the the basis, the, the yeah. foundation of, of this particular methodology is relationship. And yeah. so that was, it was all weaving together, right? Yeah. In terms of, of, of me also coming from that background, having a, a theoretical framework to work from when I was with people and also a little bit of some, some little bit of tools, psychotherapeutic tools that I could use that, I mean, they're not, uh, I don't want to say I'm, I wasn't a scope. It was like just being with human beings really. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, that was also overlaid on top of what I was doing on a daily basis. And I was working on team with a psychologist. And so I would debrief with her a lot. So there are a lot of things going on for me yeah. that made it, a uh, a really enriching experience to transition, like, as you're saying, you know, yeah. evolve, I guess, from where I was to, to where I went to. Yeah. And to me, it would, it would seem such an opportunity when you've got a multidisciplinary approach, you've got patients which have had a load of manual therapy in the past. And the fact that you're interested in what has worked for them 
and it turns out they wouldn't be coming to see you if manual therapy was the thing that would be effective for them. Um, and you're working with psychologists and people who are all on, on board and, and sharing the same sorts of kind of views or paradigms, whatever yeah. the phrase might be. Relationships with patients or therapeutic relationships are all relationships with patients therapeutic. That's the first thing. Like, is that just, just the fact that we are therapists and there is a patient that adopts a, the role of a patient? Is any kind of relationship between the clinician and the therapist the clinician and the patient rather is it therapeutic just by nature of those two individuals taking a role well that's a bit of a that's a bit of a philosophical question. it is a bit of a yeah because <laughs> it, it was on the list and I, I kind of thought well is it is it the case that there are that you can you can have a clinician and a patient that have a relationship but there are no therapeutic qualities ingredients within that relationship and that and so that's not a good that's not a good relationship well well it's right it's Right. So is it therapeutic? Well, so if, yeah. let's, if we go to a, a high level, right? So therapeutic, meaning it's of benefit, right? It's a he, it's of healing. It heals. It helps heal, right? It's a healing relationship, right? And so I would say that, that we label this, we will label the patient practitioner relationship as therapeutic. However, mm -hmm. If you read about what a therapeutic relationship is, a definition of it, or the components of it from psychotherapy mm -hmm. or, you know, some of the work that I've done, um, there are particular components of it. Um, and you can assess the quality of it. Certainly, they're far more advanced in psychotherapy and yeah. physical therapy were my discipline. Um, we're trying. We're getting there. We're, we're moving right forward uh but really it's we're in our infancy and in, in you yeah. know looking at at quality and assessing the quality of the therapeutic relationship so um so yeah to to your to your question are they i would say mm, i can't say that but i say that's what we should be striving for i yeah. can say that that and maybe that is the intention that we should be thinking of instead of the assumption of well, this is a therapeutic relationship. I'm in yeah. a therapeutic relationship. Maybe the assumption shouldn't be that. Maybe it's, maybe it should be. I I'm I want this there this relationship to be therapeutic. I want it to be a therapeutic relationship. I think we just sold that philosophical conundrum between us that that a clinician might be having a relationship with a patient, which isn't therapeutic, but the intention is, or rather, it doesn't exhibit the qualities that which you, you know, which which the theoretical qualities of a therapeutic relationship. But yet the intention is that it's therapeutic. So, so for example, a clinician that really doesn't give the patient autonomy or doesn't share decision making, doesn't listen to their story, puts them in a kind of passive position, mm -hmm. despite that being seemingly not an optimal relationship to develop with the patient. If the they, a clinician, by all intents and purposes, might think that's a really good that might be therapeutic by their <laughs> by their measure, but it turns out it probably isn't. Well, and 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 you you, you stumble upon a point, right? Is who gets to determine if it's therapeutic, right? So when we're looking at when we're looking at uh, research in psychotherapy, um, more often the assessment of the patient of the quality of the therapeutic relationship is predictive of outcome. Than the therapist mm. and oftentimes patients and therapists are not on the same page in terms of what their assessment of the quality so the therapist yeah. is thinking other things right in terms of, of what the relationship is and the patient is experiencing something different or perceiving something different I'm, and i should say maybe the therapist is maybe the therapist isn't perceiving a relationship maybe they're thinking about what it is i don't know right i think it's mm. an interesting situation because you would think if a, if a relationship and and we're now coming into just general sort of qualities of it should be mutual right yeah. there should be a back and forth right um there should be mutual trust mutual mutual caring mutual respect uh a rapport 
right? That, mm-hmm. that bond, that positive affective attachment. So I think we're saying that it's in the eye of the beholder, essentially, yeah. in the relationship. Yeah, and that it's important that that we we don't just are, that we understand what the patient is experiencing. Are you yeah. is is this good for you? Like, is this are we are we? You know, because this, this is happening, right? You know, so I mean, yeah, I think we we um, we make a lot of assumptions. Yeah, and and because there are those times when you you've you've had you see other patients that have seen other clinicians and they might through the course of you know the, the session or sessions describe the the kind of relationship they had with their last therapist or clinician mm-hmm. and you're sitting there thinking oh it didn't sound very good did it like that you know they, the kind of advice they were giving or the sorts of interventions they were delivering or the sorts of time they gave you that that wouldn't kind of score for me as a as a, as a therapeutic relationship as i understand it but the patient might be gleaming from that relationship and just thinking that was, you know he was such a great clinician he was so it becomes really difficult difficult to try and match up perceptions of uh, of relationships yeah and i think that's but that's a part of the relationship though as well is that you know we're are we checking in are we attuned with our patients um you know and and are we attuned to so here's another are we attuned to the process or are we attuned to the outcome right? Even of a therapeutic relationship, if I'm attuned to a quality of a therapeutic relationship, am I paying attention to that in terms of that as an outcome? Am I attending to the process of developing it? So if I'm present, if I'm receptive, if I'm committed, if I'm genuine, all right, setting up those conditions, setting up that safety, and that's my focus is that process, then I I could assume that there would be, there could be a, a positive relationship there and also i need to be there's checking in with patients right like verbally you know um are we on the right track how are we doing or but but also but also being very receptive to to being to watching their cues Mm. is this person responding to me how are they how are they acting in within the interaction and so for example talking about communication skills right let's say so I can go off, take a course in communication skills, right? And and there's a checkbox, check ticky box of things that I need to check off that I've done, right? I've done this, 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 and this. Have I connected with that person just because I've done those things? Maybe, maybe not, right? So I think that that we have to attune to our patients. So we have mm. to be present and we have to be receptive, and we have to create that safe container. And you can see, you can you can observe when a patient starts to starts to relax with you right you know uh you know their posture changes the tone of their voice might soften might relax a bit more they might start to breathe (laughs) they uncross their arms (laughs) you know uh they lean back a little bit you know when they Mm -hmm. relax versus they're rigid they're closed they have a closed posture they lean back from you when you lean into them those sorts of things so so it's it's about really being present and receptive within the relationship and so it's a good thing to have a, a well-developed therapeutic relationship. That's a good thing. It's a question. Yeah. <laughs> Is it rhetorical? <laughs> it kind of was. It was, but then I suppose what's – so why is it a good thing? You've done lots of work in the therapeutic relationship. You've, you've identified or constructed a range of conditions mm-hmm. which need to be cemented or present or established by the patient and the clinician in order for a, for a relationship to develop from? I'm paraphrasing your entire thesis. I've probably got it completely wrong. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> that's funny. Uh, well, no, no, I know you're, you're, you're dribbling into it for sure. Um, so yeah, so there are conditions, the conditions of engagement, right. Yeah. And, and that set up a, a safe container, right. For, for patients where they, and therapists as well. So the conditions are being present and receptive. Those are foundational conditions, right? Yeah. So if you think of the container as a box, right. As a, as a, as a top bottom side, a, a box, the bottom of the container is being present, right? If you don't have a, a bottom of, of a box, you can't contain much. So if you walk into a therapeutic relation, if you walk into a, an interaction with a patient and you're not present, forget it. It's If you're not there with them in the moment and embodied in the moment with them, forget it. Sides of the box are being receptive, right? And, and once again, you need sides of a box to have a container. You're not going to contain much, right? And so being receptive is about that attunement, that being very aware, that heightened sense of awareness, mm. that focused receptivity around nonverbal and verbal cues, but also that open attitude, that willingness to work with people, yeah. um, being non-judgmental, right? And so that sets up a pretty good space where, you know, I can't say for sure, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make an assumption that if you set up those things and you're 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 picking up the, the patient because you're receptive and because you're present that yeah you're you and the patient are connecting then you're developing yeah. a relationship you're starting to develop connections you're you're developing a relationship but so your conceptual model your thematic framework i forget yeah. how you describe it in your, in your in your papers so that gives a really rich account of those conditions and i guess i'm wondering that is it that so far clinicians have just accidentally stumbled across these because i don't remember taking classes in those conditions i just I don't, I, and I probably wasn't even aware of them. I mean, when I read your, your work, I said, like, oh, yeah, I kind of can, can see that, and that resonates with me as, as, as quality research tends to do. But I don't recall that these are kind of, these aren't necessarily taught or built into curricula. And so, is it the case that many therapists, that they're not on their clinical radar, and they're not setting those conditions, or some are accidentally? Some just aren't, and they've got bad relationships, as, as, as we maybe described. Are they being deliberate? Well, I, like I start to think about when you say that, I go, well, are therapists being deliberate? Are they being conscious? Are they consciously trying to develop relationships? Um, so I think there's levels. I think, yeah, there, 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 there are people who are just going about their thing, right, and just doing their thing, and they're not thinking about necessarily thinking about relationships. And then, you know, there are therapists who who are. They're, they're, they're thinking about, well, how do I – connect with this person? How do I, you know, and the, the, the therapist in, in my study that those therapists, we purposively sampled therapists that we believed would be able to speak about mm -hmm. the therapeutic relationship in a very rich way. And they could, and they, they really, these therapists were intentional, right? They weren't operating from a framework per se, mm -hmm. but they were operating with the intention of developing relationships and so i think that that um it's both it's both it's both right but and then there are, and then there are people like me who were using actually using psychotherapeutic frameworks and theory to inform and and for me to interpret i was using those lenses to help mm -hmm. me negotiate or navigate relationships Right. And so so maybe there are there are different tiers of or, yeah. you know, how how we how we navigate through that. I was a, a bit more sophisticated just because of the training that I took. Right. Mm. So and I think more therapists now are taking they're taking motivational interviewing and they're, mm. you know, psychologically informed, uh, you know, 
practice and they're taking more workshops and trainings, um, you know, to be able to be more sophisticated and more conscious um, in what they do. Because theory helps us determine, helps us predict, helps us explain, but it also helps us determine what actions we can take and did those act, yeah. were those actions effective and how do I need to course correct, right, yeah. um, to, to navigate relationship. And so that shift in, as you said, clinicians now are more interested in relationships, contextual factors, the kind of psychosocial um, milieu of, of clinical practice. Whereas in the 70s, or before then, 60s, the sorts of relationships that clinicians, doctors had with patients, has, has the shift in healthcare also ch- shifted the type of relationships we, we seek to address? So I'm thinking about a 1960s physician probably wouldn't have some of those conditions in his head or even even accidentally or intuitively use them. They were it, Medicine or yeah. healthcare was quite different back then. And, and so I imagine the relationships were quite different back then. Yeah, I, I was a child in the 70s. I was a babe. So, <laughs> so, so I, I think, I mean, I think that, that certainly we, if there was, if there's been a rolling evolution mm. um, and I haven't, you know, looked at this systematically at all, but if there's been a rolling evolution, I mean, you know, you, you could go back to Engel and biopsychosocial model in medicine and, and that sort of movement to see a more holistic you know, person in front of you versus a disease. Uh, and and then the evolution of patient-centered care kind of combining with that or person-centered care where, where the person is now the center and they need to be actively integrated into their, their plan or their care, right? And being active participants in that. Um, I think that we're, we're moving certainly back in the day, it was probably more paternalistic, Right. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, uh, the clinician is the knower, the patient is, is the, is, is the object. Right. And that's how we negotiated. Right. Um, I'm going to figure out what's the matter with you. I'm going to tell you what we need to do and you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we're, the general movement has been more away from that paternalistic sort of reductionist perspective to a more, uh, to, a, to a situation where we're trying to acknowledge complexity, we're trying to acknowledge all of these factors that influence mm-hmm. um, that influence a person's experience um, within their social settings, within their institutions, um, and within their own bodies. Right? So, so I think that we're 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 trying to embrace complexity. We're trying to embrace a more an equal a more equal relationship where where we meet meet people as equals. Right. Um, you're an expert. I'm an expert. That kind of language. However, I think those those patterns, whether we want that to happen and whether it does happen or how consistently it happens. Yeah. Those are those are things that I, I'm I can't I don't I don't know that we've reached the point where where we can say, yeah, you know, we we're person centered. Yeah. There's years and decades and, and even still systems that focus us to be problem solvers as clinicians, right? here's a problem, here's a solution, and um, please comply with me, right? Yeah. You still talk about compliance of mm-hmm. patients. Patients being compliant, patients adhering to the treatment plan, right? So there's 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 implicit power dynamic mm-hmm. um, within that language. So how are we doing in terms of in, what's your sense of how so that so uh, the fact that we're, we're having this podcast and you've got your own part podcast there are a ton of podcasts which are t- touching on similar topics suggest that there is there has been 
change and that 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 clinicians are are more interested and in, and in recognizing these these skills or or this aspect of of the interaction but you think that but we could all be doing better yeah I do. I do. I think I think um, a key piece of it that, you know, we're we're talking about skills and we're talking about attitudes and we're talking about intentions. We haven't talked a lot about how we reflect as practitioners, how we're reflective afterwards or being reflexive within the clinical interaction. And so like we bring the assumption is, is that patients bring their baggage into into the, the, the clinical interaction. Right. And we as clinicians, we love to psychoanalyze patients and try to figure out, you know, why aren't they doing this? Or why haven't they done this? Or why hasn't this worked? And we're not, I don't think I'm going to make a bold statement. I, I don't, I don't know that we reflect on what baggage we bring into the mm-hmm. clinical interaction, right? What are my patterns? How am I eliciting responses in, in patients that are not therapeutic? That it's not a ther- this isn't a therapeutic interaction because I'm engaging mm-hmm. with this patient in a violent way. Right in in a way that isn't honoring them or respecting them. When does that happen? How do we negotiate that within ourselves? Right. So so I think that that is a key piece of of whether we evolve is how reflective mm-hmm. we are and how critically reflective we are of ourselves, but also our, our our professions, right, and our institutions. Right. We like to say they're they're patient centered policies, but our institutions actually evaluating those policies and how they're being implemented and what are the outcomes of the implementation of person-centered policies? Or is it just all lip service? It's interesting when you mention students, at least the institution that I work, students, the idea of reflection is just beaten into students at every stage. I mean, students are constantly asked to reflect. And as you as you spoke, most of the reflection is around their learning experience and the skills that they're acquiring or developing and through their training but they're probably not i don't i could be wrong so i don't work in the the, the the clinic you just wonder how much they they are encouraged to reflect about the sorts of relationships that they develop or don't develop or how that run how did that go like how as you said how did my baggage or my assumptions or my my kind of personal circumstances how might that affected or influence that that interaction and yeah. that relationship i don't Often it is, you know, they are, you know, there is more reflection amongst students, but you just wonder what they're reflecting about. Often it's about skill acquisition and knowledge and, yeah, you know, that kind of you stuff. Know, and how they applied this and, you know, and, it, but are they reflecting on who they are? You know, like, what is my experience? What, what are my, what, do, how do I behave? What triggers me? Right. Clearly a, a patient comes in and they say they're, they, they're flared up from the last treatment and they're, they're a bit ticked off. How do I respond? What does that stir up in me? Right? Do what does it stir up a pattern of being blamed? I don't want to be blamed here. So I get defensive, mm. right? You know, I, I mean I and, and it can be you can be even even more subtle, right? So, you know, for myself, one of my patterns is that that I I would tend to take care of people, right? And so it it was hard to be especially working because I, I had a special interest in working with people who had experienced trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, psychological dysregulation. That was my jam. Right. And so, so working with people who, um, who have nervous systems that are very fragile in terms of whether they spill over and become very hyper, their nervous systems become overactive, right. Um, hypervigilant, sorry, I lost the word. Um, sometimes what you do and what you don't do, can can affect that and so 
instead of being able to be in partnership at times, what mm -hmm. I would do is I would set the boundaries versus working with the patient to set the boundaries around treatment. I would try and take care of them. I didn't want them to, to mm -hmm. be hurt. I didn't want to hurt them. Right. So I didn't trust them to set boundaries. So that is a little more subtle, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, kind of way of, of, of understanding how I'm yeah. not in relationship with this person in this moment, right? In a particular moment in time. And that's another thing. We move through our ability to be in relationship in all relationships, in our lives from moment to moment, really, right? So that sense of being responsive and trying to be aware, that's, it's, it's a journey. There's yeah. no, there's no, you're never getting to the, to the end of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, I think that, that, that is a, to be in relationship, you need to be vulnerable yeah. and to be vulnerable you have to be able to look at yourself, good and bad, what you're contributing. And, yeah, and be honest. And be honest and see yourself as a human being, just as you want to see the patient or the person in front of you as a human being as well. Yeah, it's being vulnerable, but it's also being being resilient enough that whatever the truth is, you're able as a as a clinician or professional, you can kind of roll with it and say, you know, that I was you know, that was a an unhelpful reaction or I didn't handle that well or and and not for it to crush you and you're you know, in a ball of tears on the, on the floor in front of the patient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, so there are ruptures in relationship mm -hmm. with patients. There are little snags that we're going to come across, especially if you have a longer term relationship with somebody, you know, that's a bit more complex, right? Sometimes it's not going to be all merry and you're going to have to maybe say something that, you know, will trigger a response in a yeah. patient that you maybe have to tell them something they may not want to hear, uh, you know, and, and how do you negotiate the emotions of that and how you, how you deal with that? So, so given the complexities of developing relationship, can you just simply list a series of quality, a series of qualities <laughs> that our listeners can just operationalize tomorrow in clinical practice? Right. So you want, just, me, to, you want me to reduce it to... Just reduce it to a, 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 a series of tick boxes. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I, I suppose if there if there are because we, we you know busy clinicians not time to engage in in lots and lots of reading or, or or thinking, but you know what what would be some of the take home messages I suppose or what sorts of advice thinking I'm just trying to imagine a busy MSK clinician that's got high kind of patient throughput is just immersed in interventions and maybe hasn't got maybe wants to know more or think more about the sorts of relationships that they develop with their patients do you have any any advice or anything to to at least shape my incoherent uh, question to you <laughs> so i'm trying so you, so you started talking about about you know patient a, a, pra, a practitioner a clinician your practice I, i'm starting to thinking about thinking about them bumping from one patient to the to another yeah you know a really fast-paced environment um you know and and i start to get anxious Right. I start to feel I start mm -hmm. to feel a sense of rush in my body. I'm being mm. rushed in my body. Uh, I'm not breathing right now. My shoulders are tight. Uh, my you know, when I was saying that my speech started rising, you know, uh, and, and so I think the, the biggest thing is it's not what you do. It's who you are, who you are being. Right. So if you can take a breath or do what, whatever, whatever you need to do. Before you go in to see another patient, it could be a breath, it could be saying a mantra, it could be a word, mm -hmm. it could be something you do physically, whatever it is. But if you can regulate your own body, right? 
so that you can be present. That that is ne- absolutely necessary because if you go into a clinical interaction anxious or rushed, patients are going to pick mm. up on that and it's going to send their nervous system into a more sympathetic response. Okay. So being, being present, being with the person that you're with is important. Okay. Um, to unpack that a bit for us, what does that, what does it mean to be present with a patient? So being present with a patient is being in the moment with them, blocking out everything else. So we know clinical practice and our extended lives, there's a lot that can pull us out of the moment with the patient, right? But the ability to be able to land, like I think of it as landing, I'm landing. With every patient mm-hmm. that I see, I'm going to land with you. What does that feel like when I land, right? I'm grounded, I feel my body, I'm breathing, now I interact with you. My voice mm-hmm. is calm and now I interact with you. And that is the foundation mm-hmm. of, of any clinical interaction in my opinion. Right. And so, so that, that, that needs to happen. You need to be in your own body experiencing that relationship in the moment and blocking out other, other, the last patient that you saw, mm-hmm. the argument you had with your partner before you left, all of that needs to be parked. And, and it's kind of resetting or retuning those senses yeah. to, to this individual that's in front of you now, which, which is, di- who is different to the individual you saw five minutes ago. Uh-huh. And will be different to the next individual you see in the, in your next appointment. And it's about kind of tuning into this individual and recognizing that that they're someone else, and you need to. It's not a blank slate. It's not like you're kind of cleaning like that kids game when you swipe it and it all kind of disappears. Whatever the, the thing, the magnetic thing that you draw. And it's not, yeah. But it's something about saying, like you said, landing. Like I'm now here with this person, and I'm ready and open and attuned. Exactly, you're tuning. So you're tuning to them. And then you're watching, and then as you roll, and as you're watching them, you're you're opening up your ability to be receptive. All right. If you come into a relationship and clinical interaction, and you're hypervigilant, right? You're rushed. You're activated, and not in a good way. There's a there's good ways of being sympathetically activated, right? There are other times that are no, you're you're not. And so when we are in that state of sympathetic activation, we actually close down. <laughs> right? It's fight or flight, right? And so we close down to communicating, we close down to engagement. And patients, it's implicit, we we need to create that sense of safety or that implicit sense of safety Mm -hmm. where the patient in front of us isn't perceiving us literally neuroceptively perceiving us, and and the term is neuroception, actually, isn't neuroceptively engaging with us like we're a threat to them, right? So unconsciously, we are all scanning our environment, for nonverbal cues for safety. So as a clinician, I don't want to enter into an interaction and be perceived as a threat, right? So if I'm calm, if I'm regulated, patient's going to now open up and Mm. I'm going to open up to engaging. If neither one of us are, we're closed, right, to actual social engagement. And Mm. that's not where we want to be in an interaction. So being present and receptive, foundational. And the, the consequences of that, so the consequences of, like you kind of alluded to it just then, that to be open to that social interaction with that individual patient, what flows from there is, I suppose, what's the point of that? So that sounds like a, it's a good thing to do because it just sounds like a good thing to do. But the consequences are, is that you, it can, that can shape your 
your therapeutic interaction in terms of the the sorts the lines of conversation that you have with patients the sorts of interventions you might propose as, yes. as, as possibilities and I know we hate the word compliance and adherence but whatever the phrase is where the patient kind of buys in or, or always with you on that yeah or, or with that decision yeah and that then has consequences around outcomes because because uh, yeah. because we could say well you could have all the worst I mean this is the paradox you, you might have a, a, a menu of qualities for a relationship which just reads like the most horrible menu for relationship therapy relationship ever but yet the the clinical outcomes as measured by whatever metric the patient might still get better despite a horrible looking therapeutic relationship the point of these conditions and being present is that that there is a purpose i mean there is a means to that that we hope that patients get better faster quicker cheaper whatever that yeah, from a system perspective, from an individual, from a moral perspective, from a, an ethical perspective, from a professional practice standard perspective, right? I mean, I know it's built into our standards here for physical therapy that that's our it's our responsibility to develop therapeutic relationships. However, we don't assess it, right? We just assume, yeah, well, well, we know all know how to do that, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, absolutely. I mean. The idea that, I mean, and there is growing literature to show within rehabilitation anyway, that that better relationships, better quality therapeutic relationships are associated with better clinical outcomes, right? And so there, I mean, there could be, that could be because of of the alliance that you've developed and, and people have actually, um, you've supported them in a way that has, that has promoted them to move forward in their lives, right? It, maybe there's some placebo effect involved there uh you know there, there can be a lot of things that are influencing mm-hmm. that outcome but the idea is that yes from a clinical outcome perspective therapeutic relationships because you could say you as a clinician they might say oh this all sounds a bit hard this you know to be present <laughs> i've got all these conditions i need to think about i was just really going into the room and just doing a series of manual therapy or exercise okay, intervention well- Okay, well, so and, and like, do I really have to? Oh, do I really have to, you know, develop these these sorts of things. Okay, so I'm going to flip it around, and I'm going to say, do you really want to harm your patient? No, but they would say, well, I'm not that harm. It's not harm, is it? It's not the same as die, dying from a, a, a spinal artery, you know, dysfunction. It's not harm. It's not. It's not real harm. Well, so if I go into an interaction with somebody who, let's say, and and unbeknownst to me, maybe has has a very hypervigilant nervous system because of past trauma. And I go in really revved up, hypervigilant. Um, my nervous system is going up and they pick that up and they actually become hypersensitive or hypervigilant, mm. right? I could say, well, yeah, actually you had a, you had a nocebo effect on your patient. You actually had a negative effect on your patient, right? Just by being, not even by what you just not, you don't even touch them yet. And you are pretty impressive. And you've already <laughs> negatively influenced mm-hmm. your patient. So, you know, I mean, we can talk about harm or, you know, you can define that however you want, but how, how do you want to be if, if you do nothing else yeah. for that patient? Do you actually want to have at least an interaction that has some sort of physiological benefit for yeah. them, even just by you being, and that's what I reinforce to, to clinicians is that, listen, you can affect people affect their physiology just by how you're being in relationship with them the, the harm is the missed opportunity isn't it really to, to do some good that's the harm uh, well the harm might be that just you being in the room my knee hurts more <laughs> it's one 
yeah is one one or it's or the knee doesn't hurt more but you've you you've missed that opportunity to 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 help you know change behavior or kind of modulate nervous system whatever it might be yeah. or to create a, a more therapeutic response in that patient and that in itself is harmful it's almost like withholding care in it withholding treatment purposefully or unintentionally yeah and so so exact so and and then whose fault does it become mm-hmm. what happens when the patient doesn't improve let's say well they didn't comply with treatment right mm-hmm. it always falls back to the patient right and and i'm like well maybe if you would have had a better relationship Maybe it didn't have to work out that way. Or maybe they wouldn't have gotten quite as moved along in terms of a better outcome in quite the way that you both had hoped. However, you knew that you created the conditions as best that you could for them to do that within your within your space. Right. Mm. And maybe, maybe they they need something else, or maybe they're just not ready, or whatever their situation is, whatever their social situation. We also have to remember. That, that clinical interaction and the relationship that we have with, with the patient is just one of many <laughs> relationships that they have, situations that they enter into. So I, I also don't want to be so arrogant to think that, well, you know, you can have, if you develop this positive relationship, it mm-hmm. is panacea, right? You know, and, and it, because it's not really, we're, we're, we're there to support, we're there to serve and I think that's where my mentality is moving more towards now, especially in light of COVID, right, um, is how are we, as my profession, physical therapists, how are we of service? How are we serving people? How can we help with what we do? How do we adapt? How do we mobilize? You know, and in the age of, of, of COVID where we're doing more telehealth, right, well, we're having to communicate yeah. in different ways, that conversation's been had or that question's been posed across MSK or across healthcare, uh, certainly in physical physiotherapy here and osteopathy and all, all those kind of hands-on um, professions. What, what, so what do you, because over here the clinics are starting to go back and there's an opportunity for my clinic to start up. I'm just dreading the idea of doing an interact with the patient with all of my face hidden essentially with masks and shields and, and the patient too. And I was aside from just the un, the dis, uncomfort discomfort of just being geared up but just to miss that those facial expressions those cues mm-hmm. and just all the body yeah. language because you're shrouded in a in a cape or a gown or a apron or it is what are your thoughts around that how how might that affect the sorts of interactions and the the ability to form relationships with patients well from a the- theoretically um yeah it could i think because just because we pick up so much from facial expression Right. Um, and so uh, I think that that while that could be while that could have a, uh, a potentially a negative effect or, or not create a situation where people because they're not implicitly picking those cues up from your smile or your face. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's a big part of regulating our sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous systems that, yeah, it could. However, I think that that maybe what we it will challenge us to do in a good way is slow things down, right? So if you aren't, if, if you, if you aren't able, if, if your face is half covered, there, there has to be other ways that you convey mm. your presence with people. So it may be from eye contact, right? It may be just by your energy level and how you are, um, how you are matching the patient in their yeah. energy level. It may be um, the tone of your voice, how quickly you're speaking, right? All of those things are nonverbal cues 
that are also picked up. And so, yeah, it, it can have, it, it, I think people will have, will, 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 there'll be a period where people are getting used to it. But also I think maybe going in and being a bit more strategic about, about how you're going in and what you might need to do to adapt to that. And yeah. even preparing patients. This is a bit, this is a bit odd, isn't it? You know, you might even want to have a conversation about that. How does this feel to you? You know, like, and be, just be honest about it and, and have them be able to, if they have anxieties, then they're, they're, you've given them a space to express those anxieties. And you're also giving yourself a space to say, this isn't optimal. However, you know, we're still going to, we're still going to move forward. Right. And it's kind of neutralizing that in potential imbalance when you, when you say, it's a bit odd, isn't it? This is all a bit weird. I've got the mask on. You've got like, isn't this unusual? And 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 they say, yeah, it's really odd. It's kind of beginning to just to you're sharing a common experience there, and you're neutralizing that potential imbalance in terms of the relationship. Well, and and ex- exactly, and like you said, you know, it's odd for us. <laughs> it's not it's not the way we want to we want to be interacting either. You know, so it's it's not a comfortable situation. However, yeah, you know, pull it out on the table. I mean, I got frustrated the other day at the the grocery store when I just wanted it. I think the lady behind the t- the cashier offered me some extra bags, and I was just so grateful. I wanted to, I had this big beaming smile behind this mask, and and she had no idea. And I was just trying to say thank you very much, but she I couldn't convey my delight that she had extra carrier bags in clinical practice. That's just gonna just I'm gonna find that suffocatingly difficult. Yeah, and even as you're saying that, so you know you were it sounded like you, you were trying to get out this gravity. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're trying to get it out. You didn't have time, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and it was, you didn't have the space to look her in the eye and say, you know what? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I so appreciate this. Maybe we could take time with patients now yeah. to actually, actually look them in the eye and ask them a question and get a response or look them in the eye and say, this seems frustrating or you seem you know, you don't seem like you're comfortable or Mm. we, so we make actual contact with them in different Mm. ways. Right. And so, so connecting and tracking how they're, how they're emotionally doing, how they're physically doing and making contact with that verbally, right. Is, is important. is a huge piece of, of establishing connections and acknowledging that person. If you can Mm. acknowledge that you seem a bit frustrated or you, you seem a bit tense when we talk about, you know, the accident or, or your injury, you know, your shoulders lift up, right? Well, all of a sudden you're acknowledging them. They might not be able to see your face, but mm. they know that you're, that you're watching them and that you're paying close attention to them. So I think that for me, what I've been hearing anecdotally in the clinical community is that telehealth has, we didn't think that it was like, what are we going to do if we can't use our hands? What are we going to do if we can't assess people in person? P- people are recognizing that actually communicating <laughs> verbally, right, is important. And hopefully I see the opportunity of now, well, how can that, how can we move that into the clinic? Right. And then like you're saying, there are these other barriers, right? And now, okay, now what does, how do we evolve or how do we move through that fr- initial frustration to actually have our practice evolve and notice other things that come up yeah. that are important. It's kind of giving with one hand, taking away the other. It's kind of like COVID's happened. It's all about communication. You can't touch. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but all you guys are kind of banging on about communication. Your face is going to be, going to be covered. <laughs> and yeah. at all of those sources of information and the, the, the way in which we, we, deliver information like it's just going to be removed from you and so you've got to find some it becomes 
you know, this could have been our time, but we're it's it's going to be challenging. You know what I mean? It's kind of like communication is really important, but you just you you're now going to do it behind a mask and behind a face shield. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, and there's going to be opportunity for something else to to become very for us to become very aware of something else. Mm-hmm. I think, and that's maybe that's a Pollyanna view. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. not sure, <laughs> right? But but um, but I, I I think it's important that actually we we start to understand just how those how that affects people. Yeah. Like for example, I remember when I was in um, I was having surgery. Um, I had uh, torn my Achilles, and this was like. I've had a number of knee surgeries. And so I was in, I think this was my, like my seven orthopedic surgery. Right. And I get a little more anxious with every surgery that I have. And so I was, you know, on the table in the operating room and an anesthesiologist said to me, don't worry, have a mask on, right? Don't worry. We're going to take really good care of you. And I swear right before I was going under a tear fell, fell out of my eye because even though I couldn't see her face, mm-hmm. I could feel, and I mm-hmm. heard her say they were going to take care of me. And st- I still get choked up about it. Right. So I think there's, there's so many ways that we can connect mm-hmm. with people and we have to find those ways. We have to reconnect with our humanness. And that's not just whether we're smiling or not, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, it's compassion. It's our empathic responses that are exceptionally important as well. Mm-hmm. So Maybe we need to reflect on that. Or we just hope that the next virus just affects knees and that we haven't got to cover our face. We just got to shield our shield our, our kneecap so it doesn't spread from one kneecap to the next, but we can still communicate and smile and, and do all that. I don't want it to affect the knees. Listen, I got enough problems with my knees. Yeah. <laughs> don't curse me with the knee, Oliver. Maxie, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. In the show notes, I'll, I'll link yourself and your work so your listeners can find you. Oliver, it's been a pleasure. Uh, and, and, um, it was a real, I really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, yeah. And for those who want to know more about really more about developing that safe container, it's in an open access article. The article is open access that conditions of engagement, the necessary conditions of engagement, open access. So you can download it, the framework, that framework for establishing connections, not. So if somebody wants that one, they can, they can contact me. Well, listen, stay safe, stay well, yeah, all that stuff. You Thank you so much. And uh, we'll speak again soon. Yeah, you bet. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources, and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.